Welcome to the Attack Action Podcast, where we talk about friendship, fun times, and most importantly, flesh and blood. Here are your hosts, Taylor and Isaac. Hello, Attactioneers. It's I, your host, Taylor. Mr. Taylor, Mr. Morrow, Taylor Morrow. I'm here with Mr. Jessen, my best friend and co-host. What's up? <laughs> Hello, Mr. Morrow. <laughs> is that what they call you at school? No, they call Dude, me or Taylor, Taylor or Mr. Taylor. <laughs> nice. Mr. T. Fi- which is fine. Fair enough. Um, we just got off of a very exciting weekend watching... Flesh and Blood Nationals. I was camping. We started a new D&D campaign. It's like a lot going on. How's your D&D character coming along? You been thinking about that? Uh, I haven't really had time. I have a loose idea. So just my inspiration for my D&D character was my dog. So I just wanted to be my dog. (laughs) So I'm not playing as a dog. I'm playing as like a werewolf that transforms just into a dog. I think, but I might change that. I don't know. It's a work in progress. I just can't came up with a random generated name of Jean Baptiste. And I thought that was great. And that that would be a good name for a dog. And then was like, Oh, I'll just be my dog. So that's it. So I'm a cleric. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> it's all coming together. <laughs> yeah, totally. All right. Well, uh, what else is new? <laughs> Oh, God. Uh, Well, there's some life stuff, but this is going to be a long episode, so I'm not going to get into the reason we're recording uh, almost two hours uh, after our original scheduled time. So just a cliffhanger there for everybody as you're driving to work to be now worried about. But I welcome everyone to the Attack Action (laughs) podcast I don't even know what episode number it is anymore in the 50s, which is pretty incredible. But today we're going to be talking about sideboarding, a huge portion of the game of flesh and blood. So if if you're playing classic instructed, you got to have a sideboard and you got to know what they're doing if you expect to win any games, especially in this meta. Um, So you have that to look forward to. But first... Isaac with the news. Well, I mean, first of all, Michael Hamilton, a prolific flesh and blood player and a seemingly very nice guy, has <laughs> won U.S. Nationals, which is, you know, by far the largest Nationals event. And he did it, you know, rocking very much the mullet of decks, you know, <laughs> he... uh he basically took Eastlander, who he seemed to be excited about, but then, you know, made it play like old him essentially because he really loves Guardian and uh, won. I don't know if the deck's the best Eastlander deck or if he's just the best player, but it was a really incredible thing to see. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, we were calling it the Mullet Eastlander deck because it's Guardian in the front. And then wizard in the back. So for the first part of the game in the front, you're just guardian and then finish it off with that nice 
flowing yeah. wizard action at the end yeah, of there. Some razzle dazzle. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I thought it was incredible. Uh, he mentioned it on his podcast. Shout out to the Manor podcast also. And shout out to uh, his co-host, uh, Bodie. Rad dude. Really ties that podcast together. Um, he was talking about it on the podcast that just Wounded Bull is a better two-card hand than any red wizard spell. And so he just decided to do that instead of put red wizard cards in there. So it's great, great idea. And it worked out super well. So I'm excited to try that deck and see uh, how far away from the brain of Michael Hamilton I am. And uh, yeah, just, just figure that out. (laughs) Also. Yeah. Congratulations to, Roger Bodie, who had a whole spiel about his, uh, you know, wavering security and his competitive prowess on the last pod or whatever, and then just like top aided the calling in North Carolina. Hell yeah. So great job. Just handled it yourself and uh, doing great now. Totally. Therapy is great. You know, you just talk about your feelings and you solve some stuff and, you know, are a better person on the other side. Also, kick ass. Yeah, uh, Mr. Bodie. Did I call you Bodie Roger earlier? I can't remember. That's what was in my brain, but it is Roger Bodie. Anyway, check out our next episode where I don't, we talk. I don't think you did, but okay. now everybody knows. <laughs> Sorry, keep going. Well, just check out our next episode where we're going to take a deep dive into the psychology of being a competitive flesh and blood player. So you have that to look forward to, but that's about it on the news. That's the biggest news is Michael Hamilton wins us Nats. Tarek Patel came on our podcast, one Canadian Nats classic, uh, the old assist from the attack action podcast type of maneuver. Um, You know, so congratulations to everybody. Great job. Yeah, we've done that a lot, actually. Yeah, I know. (laughs) We should. So for Worlds, what we should do is do two episodes where you're the guest on the podcast and then you then I'm the (laughs) guest on the podcast and we'll just go one, two, you know, it would be great. (laughs) Totally. Uh, Stop practicing. (laughs) It'll be fine. Also, I, right. I just I just realized your name for this episode because we do this in a browser. Uh, you've changed your name from Ejok Frost to Dragon Master, so I like that flex. <laughs> totally, I'm trying to embody it. You know, it's just, just funny because gotta... no one is going to see it but me. <laughs> <laughs> totally, just fake it till you make it, though. You know, I got to get better here, so I'm just going to rock some really, really cool name and. Uh... <laughs> anyway uh what what else you got on the shout out list here Anybody oh yeah else shout, out. shout out totally big shout out to the combat chain uh i was listening to their episode with matthew folks and they just have this rad outro song that i don't know who made that or where it's from but i was just freaking bopping 
on my whole way to work and they just let that whole song play at the end rather than it fading out and i was grooving so hard oh that's so, cool yeah just listen to that episode for that sweet outro song nice everything everything else was fine um i really like the on the bobble music i think that's the best one but it has a i'm a sucker for violin i love some violin so uh you know really gets me there you heard it here first sucker for violin so if you're looking to woo isaac let's get your your violin well we we were talking about you know good set uh podcast music and uh they got it going on over there it's a great intro song totally uh, my other shout out goes to another podcast, uh, the Pitch Perfect podcast. They had Matt Rogers on most recently, and that was, I think, their best episode and one of the best Matt Rogers interviews. Uh, we actually got to learn a lot about Matt Rogers, the person. And, you know, it was like a just a different take because we've all heard him talk about cards and mid range and dash and new zealand and you know being good etc but so we just like learned about his life before he was matt rogers basically it seems like he's always been matt rogers but it was just great (laughs) (laughs) sorry i don't know why that was funny (laughs) i don't know it's just what being tired a whole nother man yeah, totally. Rogers, Matt, or maybe he's, I don't know, Bodie Rogers. I don't know. There you go. Anyway, uh, it's a great episode. Go listen to that episode if you haven't. Those are my shout outs. All right. Well, before we uh, started into the main topic here, we wanted to just talk about U.S. Nats at all. Um or for a bit. <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, it's hard to read and speak at the same time, but we're we're getting there. All right. So in U.S. Nationals, we saw Islander win. Uh, we saw Reinar take Malaysia. We saw we've seen uh, Dromai won Norway, I believe. A Bravos won, and Azalea top aided in Poland. Um, a lot has happened to this metagame since the second pro tour where Briar was, you know, very much the dominant force. Um, so you got any takeaways, Taylor? Uh, my biggest one is that we're starting to clearly see kind of what decks now post prism are kind of emerging from the pack as potentially like a you know some percentage points above the others and that is pretty exciting so i think probably most notably my like top four in the meta are going to be in no particular order uh icelander old him phi and then i think there could be an argument for both briar and dash but i'm gonna kind of pick dash because of how good it is into old him and how the Icelander matchup is like pretty decent for dash. So those would be my kind of like 
four front runners um, for the meta after national season. Yeah, definitely. I um, I think Briar is probably still a force, even though um, it had a force you know, of nature. Exactly. <laughs> even though it had less impressive results in this small window, um, I think that there's probably still space in the meta for that deck. Yeah, but, for sure. Yeah, it's it's like the clear winners are Oldham and Easlander, right? Like Oldham yeah. was oppressed by um, Prism. And I think uh, Easlander also was, but, you know, it. that's one of the new heroes and it's uh, it seems to have taken everyone a bit of time to like truly figure it out, like to become good pilots on the deck, develop good lists, you know, develop strategies into other decks. Um, so I think that, you know, that learning curve coupled with Prism being LL'd has really, uh, you know, we've only seen Easlander flourish recently, but it's, uh, it's definitely a powerhouse. Yeah. Most certainly. And now I get to say I've been on that deck since day one and actually mean it. So this is a fun moment in time for me, for sure. How, what, how, I mean, how did you know? <laughs> my brain just short wired as I tried to like <laughs> think of a joke there <laughs> and uh, also the humor in your statement. Um I wanted to touch back on Michael Hamilton really quick. Like so cool that a like rogue deck won the national championship in the U S like, you know, just out of nowhere, bull lander freaking comes in and just wrecks face. You know, it was just so cool that it was like that. Not another old him win or, Something like that, you know, it was really cool. Also, I guess we should have shouted out Team Dragon Shield, like three for three, Tarek, uh, Matt Rogers, and Nick Butcher all on old him winning their nationals. Pretty sick move. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, not a lot of room for improvement with those numbers. <laughs> Got to win worlds. Go one, two, three <laughs> at worlds. It's the only other move you can do now. Um, but yeah, I, I agree about Michael Hamilton because that it's like it's like they did the math or like in testing, you know, maybe in the aggro or mid-range matchups, you know, it wasn't really it wasn't quite adding up. So they're just like, well, what if we do the same thing against these decks that don't like to block or whatever, but we just use like wounded bull and scar for a scar and stuff instead. So <laughs> on our little swings. You know, we're doing the same amount of disruption, yada, yada. But then our swings yeah. are like four more damage instead. Yeah. Um, instead of arcane, which is like good to chip, but is just like less total value. And uh, they gave it a whirl and it, it whirled. Yeah, totally. So like, the, uh, you know, you can see it now, like uh, in previous Icelander builds, especially mine, where you're mostly using spells for you to catch up in the damage race and eventually win, the game needs to go quite a bit longer, but against certain heroes like Phi, that's like not as possible, but the games are still pretty close, but you like lose by a few health points or something like that. So if you just added a bit more damage and have the exact 
play patterns, which is block for two, use two to attack, and you are dealing eight damage instead of six, then it's like quite a bit different of a game, you know? And I think Michael Hamilton also, I mean, I don't know if he said this jokingly, but you know, it's like, well, what was, what's really good in uprising draft with Icelander, like scar for a scar and, you know, the six attacks and the spells. So let's just do that in CC, which I feel like that's what, maybe Tarek said about Cheerios Briar is that he had like a pretty sweet Briar pool from a draft or sealed. And it was mostly just like zero cost attacks. And then was like, well, that was sick. Maybe I can do this in classic instructed and then did. So um, maybe that's a trend that we will continue to see in draftable sets. I also could be wrong. And neither of those players said that, but who knows now? No, that is definitely the origin of Tarek's Cheerios list. Excellent. I second that. I got you. Oh, I was perfect. also I was also wondering if uh you know, so in Hamilton's deck are there like more free blue disruption spells or something like that cuz you kind of want to hold an attack on your turn rather than like dump your whole hand and then just arsenal on their turn or you know, like how that affected the rest of his deck. But I guess that's a conversation for later on with him you know what i mean though because if you're always Mm -hmm. trying to swing a red a red attack on your turn that gives you like less wiggle room to play out expensive stuff on theirs and have you know yeah i mean you don't really play ice bolts or ice eternals until the end of the game anyway like most of your damage spells you save for second cycle uh you know like ice bolt and aether hail um and whatever the other one was ice eternal but you can like kind of play out your uh aether ice veins um so then that leaves you with like frostings or brain freezes or even like a defense reaction or um a tunic use cold snap you know etc so yeah, I don't know. I'd have to watch those games back, but yeah, that's a good question and uh, interesting. In a, in some ways, your like big damage attacks are your disruption, though, as well. You know. Yeah. So yeah. So anyway, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, you were taking a a sip there, so I was gonna take over. Yeah. Um, no. No problem. We we had some. We had some what I would call like underdog decks, like Reinar. I would even call Dash a bit of an underdog. Um, but we also had some like, I don't know, maybe losers is too harsh of a word, but decks like uh, like Viserai or Dromai, who you know are like seemingly powerful or maybe have some good matchups and are well represented, but uh, just did not, you know, have I guess, you know to some degree the representation but also just the conversion uh that you might expect mm-hmm. because you know especially like viscerai was a top deck up until very recently and uh i think maybe just loses to the aggro mirror um to fine briar maybe that's the case but uh you know there's a few decks here that kind of dropped off in this new meta 
Yeah. I mean, it's uh, just how the representation of heroes go and then your matchups into them, you know? So, like, if you start to lose some of your good matchups, you get, like, a little, you know, that takes a hit to your win percentages, potentially, you know? And Viscerai just feels really fair into the meta, like you know, doesn't feel like he has like a 80 20 matchup really, you know, in the decks that are most represented. So, uh, you know, then it really matters into like player skill or, you know, or then like potentially variance depending on what deck you're playing into. So that can be like a reason for it to be a good pick. I mean, I think John Ho, uh, Viscerai legend, also top aided the calling at US Nats. So it's still like a good deck. It just doesn't have those like free wins that potentially other of the heroes do. Right. Yeah, I think it it's a, it underperforms a bit into both Eastlander and Old Him as well. Yeah. You know, with the disruption and the the mm-hmm. high blue count and defensive ability there. So yeah. The last thing I'm going to say about the meta is it is in the one of my favorite spots uh, where we have front runners for the meta to to attack and a big tournament coming up. Right. So here comes worlds. We know what the kind of top decks are, and I'm excited to see what type of innovation uh, is happening, you know. Uh, and it's just like, I urge everyone to innovate and go back to the drawing board about stuff. Like we do not have many deck builders in the community, you know, it's like iterations on old stuff over and over and over. Um, so it'd just be good to see some people, uh, take some new looks at some things and try it out. Yeah, we definitely have a tendency to kind of flock to the, uh, you know, hot new list developed by a few. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is what a meta should look like, right? Because like before, everybody's always like, oh, well, there's always a best deck. You know, it's fine. There's like, you know, there's always a best deck or whatever. But in the previous metas, there was like a best deck or a best three decks. And then like all other decks were just unplayable. Right. Yeah. Now in this meta, you know, we have a few best decks, but it's like, you know, Dorinthia can beat Eastlander, right? Yeah. Or, you know, whatever. You can pick any amount of heroes and uh, you can actually have a competitive game and a chance of winning in most matchups. And uh, yeah, I agree with you. I'm like really excited to see what Worlds brings and what, you know, people can people can do with their lists and like you know how to attack the meta the thing is you can't you can't get too cute trying to like attack the meta quote unquote right because there are (laughs) quite a few decks represented so you definitely need to uh you know watch your back and not get your deck like too weird trying to be old him and then just get like run over by fi or whatever right Uh, my last note about nationals is I have this theory about draft and, or, you know, not theory, but this is what I think about draft. 
like draft in the context of mixed formats yeah so like everybody or not everybody many people kind of have an issue with uprising draft Mm -hmm. and the limited card pool and how unforgiving it is and how you can kind of just bomb a draft and i'm not saying that none of that has merit like i hate that the five mirror going second is so much better and that's the most right. played matchup probably in the whole format you know i i hate that you know sometimes you can just get put in a tough spot and not be able to dig yourself out of it because some cards in the format are like yellow sift and you know shit like that but all of that aside i the more we see um this draft meta or whatever develop i think that i think uprising draft is bad or people think it's bad because we're just all bad like honestly ooh what a good take yeah totally because it's like everybody from like just average players all the way up to pros all are like insecure and nervous about drafting the set so they all have their preferences and some people hard force something some people just prefer something but it makes all the tables um just like the wild west so instead of everybody really cooperating which this set needs more than any other set i think um you just have like three or four unreliable players at the table and it makes it like a lot more puts a lot more variance in it for everybody else so be and then that's like a feedback loop right like because you know because i know that three or five or whatever players at my table are going to have their own preferences it makes it harder on me to just draft my seat and send good signals and receive good signals and just play it totally uh objectively which i have found in uprising if I ever have a preference towards something or I want to play something, I do much worse than if I just draft. Like if I just purely draft, don't have a preference on hero, don't care about winning, I just like do the draft, I do very well. So I think that, you know, in theory, if like at Worlds, all these pro players just relaxed and stopped like forcing Fi. Or trying to like force Easlander and get lucky and be the only one there, or you know whatever. Stop trying to like do all this tricky shit and just like <laughs> drafted. Um, I think it would go a lot more smoothly. And maybe that's a bit harsh, or you know, I know there's more to it than that. Um, but I think it, I think it would be better if we all stopped having our like you know favorites or force things or you know all that stuff. That's my that's my take. That was a great take. I love it. I think it's cool. Nice. Thank you. Uh, I do think it is harsh. (laughs) Harsh is a harsh word, though. You know what I mean? Somebody called me harsh the other day, and I was like, whoa, dude, that's harsh. Uh, (laughs) How many more times can I say that? But I think there is a lot of merit in what you're saying, like, in in terms of like if you want to win the national championship or worlds or whatever uh or even the pro tour like you have to be good at draft and the best way to be good at draft is to like not probably force fi even though you know that's what it feels like you should do 
you know what I mean? Or have a preference to Dromai or Icelander or something like that. Um, you can just be open and be proficient with all of the heroes. And that obviously gives you the best um, chances of winning. It's just like, I bet the logistics that is the toughest part, you know, like getting eight people together to draft and all of that stuff is a lot harder than you and a couple other people playing classic constructed games. But I fully agree with the sentiment of that, like, you know, you got to be comfortable playing everybody because you never know. And if you want to have the best chances, that's how you can give yourself the best chances. Yeah. And it's a totally reasonable approach. Like if you're a competitive player and you like really want to win, you know, to just be like, well, if I just, you know, Fi, if I force Fi, I can like probably two one this pod, you know? So like, yeah, people do that. And like, it's a game, you know, everybody's allowed to play whatever they want. Right. I'm just saying that, you know, uh, I think things would be a bit smoother if everybody was a bit more open. Yeah, that's a good, that's like, what do we call that? A double entendre, right? So like open oh, yeah. in draft and open to the idea of being open in draft. So yeah, I agree. I, you know, I got a draft uh, uprising again uh, this weekend and it was, you know, it's fine, but the gameplay I still really enjoy those games of draft of uprising draft. I mean, maybe not so much the five mirror, but like everything else I really, really enjoy. And so I don't know. Yeah. I, I still like tales of Aria better because I like playing those three heroes more. And the, I think the draft is like, because it's a little bit more flexible is, uh, you know, a bit more interesting, but um, I was going to mention, I think, I think this was an Arsenal pass, but Tarek Patel had a really good point that I thought illustrated. Yeah. So this a lot better about how like, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're in Dromai taking a red rake and having one of those commons gone, it's kind of the way to go, but then sending a dragon, which is a rare could be a signal for somebody else. So, and I've like I've experienced this also in draft where drafting Dromai is it's very scary because you're like, well, if I if I take the dragons, then I pass these good Dromai cards. That's definitely a signal Dromai is open, right? So I'm gonna take this good, I'm gonna take this red ember moth, yeah. and I'm yeah. gonna pass like uh I don't know, Mirage guy. Like not a great dragon, right? But then somebody down the line just has a different opinion on draft or is not counting the the numbers in the pack or whatever. Right. So then they're getting dragons. Right. It's like, Oh, Dromai is open. So you're kind of in this lose, lose situation. And this can happen with different examples, um, kind of with all the heroes, but I thought that the yeah. dragons were, a, uh, you know, particularly clear example of how it's. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, so I'm doing the right thing. Read my signal, you know, but it's yeah. like, it's hard. <laughs> it's so funny. Cause that, literally just happened to me this weekend so i open pack one is Muragai, uh 
red cinepi, a red dust up, and like a smattering of like also good fi cards. And then the generics don't support. There's like a, I forget what the generics were, but they like didn't support anything other than those classes. It was just very much leaning towards Dromai or Draconic. And there was two really good Icelander cards in there. There was an Ice Eternal and a blue Aether Hail. And I was like, well, if I take one of these really good, if I take this Cinepi, the person I'm passing to is still going to believe Dromai is open. Even if I pick Moraga, it doesn't matter. So I have to go into Icelander right now and um, hope that that's the right pick. But picking the the um, Dromai cards was not going to send any sort of signal, and I'm going to screw myself later in the draft. So funny that you mentioned that because it's it's a real thing. <laughs> nice. You made the right call. I did. 3-0, baby. Isn't that funny how there's like a thing where you can have too many good cards of something? Yeah, it's annoying. I got to stay out of that. (laughs) Yeah, it sucks. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Yeah. All right. Shall we uh, get into this main topic here? Yeah. You want to bring us in? Yeah, totally. So like we mentioned at the top of the episode, we're going to be talking about sideboarding. Um, So if you are brand new to the game, so in a game of classic instructed is mainly what this is uh, geared towards. Uh, You get 80 cards in your deck to present to your opponent. And then you can play a minimum of 60 in your main card deck plus your four equipment slots and your weapon. So your sideboard then consists of any cards that don't wind up in that basic 60 card minimum. Does that make sense so far? Yeah, I would just let like, so you have your main deck, which is cards that are always present in your deck, no matter the matchup. And you have a sideboard, which is made up of any card that is not in the deck for every matchup. It com- they come in for some matchups and are left out for others. Right. Yep. So yeah, that's then the next step is that you your deck is going to have an identity, basically. Um, it's going to have this thing that it does really, really well. And that's either based on your hero or the cards you've chosen for that hero. Most notably they're like, or most typically, most typically, typically they are entwined in one another, your hero choice and the cards you have in your deck. So you, you have this core deck which you've uh, kind of distilled down to like the th- thesis of of what you're trying to do. And that's usually typically somewhere between 40 and 50 cards. And then any other card in your list 
will bring your ad into to add up to 60 cards, um, you know, on average, most typically. And then so those cards are all your sideboard cards. So then um, you can also think of it as sideboarding as this way to flex your hero um, in one direction or another. And I remember early on in our days, Isaac, you were talking about that idea of how a hero could, you know, flex one way or the other. And the different ways you can flex are if you can think of the game on a continuum. So on one end, you have control. And on the other end, you have aggro. And then you have in between those are degrees in which you are leaning towards one end or the other. And then so your sideboard can also influence where you fall on that continuum based on your matchup. Are you with me still? Yes. And uh, so some decks... Like, uh, let's take a very proactive aggro deck, right? They might have a very similar game plan into most decks and a sideboard for this deck might just entail like, you know, three sink belows for the aggro mirror or when playing into ninja, because every once in a while, they're going to have to stop a mask trigger or something. So it's the same deck, just three sink belows in it. Or whatever. Or, uh, you know, you might have three additional blues to add for when you're playing against Eastlander or a tax deck, you know, and that might be right. kind of it. Right. So very basic sideboarding, getting the tools you need. Um, you know, you might have three command and conquerors for against illusionist. Um, but then kind of at the other end are decks that need to flex their roles in different matchups. So depending on the matchup, you might be the aggressive deck. That might be your game plan to win. In other matchups, you might be a combo deck. Like, you know, if you take a Viscerai pre-Skeleta ban, right, that deck could be extremely aggressive or could have an OTK strategy for against Oldham or Guardian. And uh, that involves or usually involves um, more complex sideboards and more complex packages to shift roles. So again, sideboarding can be just like very basic, a um, couple cards right. in and out, or it can be like a whole package of cards um, that will also accompany a change in piloting. Yeah, totally. That's a, a great amendum to that. And, you know, some of those things too are preference. So some sideboarding choices are player preference and some are kind of how the metagame uh, dictates your hero needs to play to be viable, right? Um, so if, you know, you're like, whatever I can, or, you know, so like, for example, um, I think Viscera and Icelander are great examples of how um, your cards in flesh and blood can do so many different things. Like, I think we forget sometimes that your cards attack, defend, generate resources, 
and like have an ability on them a lot of times. And those two heroes to me have kind of the most flexible packages of core cards, you know, like for Icelander, you know, like you have cards that are wizard non-attack actions that are also ice and also blue and also block for three. But then like frost hex is always in your deck, but you only use it heavily in a very, very few of your matchups. But because it is a blue ice non-attack card that blocks for three, like you can just keep it in your core cards to use it in every single matchup, either as a pitch card or a blue block for three. One of my favorite examples here is um, this rounds on me in Briar, right? Because (laughs) it's like, I mean, it's okay. It's pretty good, but it's just, it's like a non-attack that replaces itself, which is pretty powerful, right? So it's like half of an embodiment token. um, And then you get another card. Great. But if this was like a two block red, it would not be in there. The thing is, it's it's also a non-attack action. So blocks for three or four sometimes and is also a blue. So it kind of fills Mm -hmm. all of those roles, which earn it a slot, even though one of those roles or maybe even two of them would probably not earn it a slot in the deck. Yeah, exactly. So kind of your first steps here, moving into how to develop your sideboard is figuring out what the deck you're playing is doing. What is your idea the deck is going to do? And I'm probably just going to use Icelander for most of my examples. Uh, Sorry for anybody who doesn't play Icelander or plays other heroes and would like other examples, but I've literally been only playing Icelander since uh, May. So that's, that's all I know now. I, one trick, I forgive you. One trick pony. I, Thank you. I will be using mostly Dromai examples because it's also <laughs> the only thing in my brain and so much easier. <laughs> so so uh, your core cards basically in Icelander I, I, I laid out are <clears throat> because the hero wants to play this kind of mid-rangey um, kind of control It's not so much control, but it kind of is a game plan. And so to enact that, you need non-attack actions that are blue. So you can use Icelander's hero ability and that block for three. And if they're an ice card that does all of that, even better. So that's why you're running max blues of frosting ice bolt aether hail uh frost hex right like those are all your premium ice cards that are blues that block for threes you know and they they give a frostbite so there's some taxation in there as well right like some of those are really good cards but blue frosting is not really a great card it just uh ticks up a lot of ratios in your deck yeah yeah, so, so it's like has value you that need, way. Yeah, and you need the blue ices to also, or you just need ice cards to fuse as well. So you need these like cards that do all of these things. 
um, in your deck. And then so once you've figured out like, oh, this is what this deck, this is what I want this deck to do, then through your process of testing or just theory crafting, right? You, you, uh, I, okay, I'll tell you how I do it. So I come up with a core ethos for the deck, just 60 cards or 64 cards, and then just play that a bunch and see what my good matchups are, what my bad matchups are, and then what cards I'm finding I'm using or not using or, or whatever. And then I kind of go back to the drawing board and strip out the chaff and then add some other stuff. And then I also have a better idea of what I need to add to my deck to make certain matchups better. That's right. how I do it. I I agree. So yeah, step one, right, is just like um, just building a deck. Right. Step one is sideboarding. First, you're building a deck. Go listen to deck building episode and, uh, and you know, <laughs> build a deck. Um, yeah, totally. Because listen I do the same thing. Pro, right? pro tips. Episode yeah. 27, I think. Pro tips. Nice. Listen to that one. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I do the same thing. I start with an idea for what the deck's going to do. And, you know, I make a 60 card deck. And oftentimes I'll have like some sort of sideboard, right? So if I'm playing into, you know, Bravo, you know, maybe I have three unmovables in my sideboard or whatever. And it's just like really simple like that, like some extra blues, an energy potion, some, some defense reactions, like whatever, but it doesn't really matter, right? First I'm figuring out what the deck does and then I'm figuring out what the deck does in each matchup. Which, um, you know, for a deck like Dromai, your piloting varies drastically matchup to matchup. So you need to figure out both of those things. And I, like I said, the sideboarding kind of gets tweaked along the way, but you really need to have your, your deck dialed and then your uh, matchup strategy dialed. And then that's when sideboarding really comes in for me, because then you can start looking at sideboard cards and see you know like oh these cards have this role in this matchup and this role in this matchup right so like um you know uh semblance right is a uh, blue so it's a blue and it has a role in the guardian matchup energy potion is also a blue uh so it has a role against like Easlander. it also protects me from exposed to the elements against um old him but i don't run it against bravo because it doesn't block and i'm not getting taxed in that way right so you can identify these different functions of all of these cards and um, then start to start to tweak your sideboard and really approach sideboarding after you after you know what you're trying to do in each matchup then you can start sideboarding mm -hmm. right yeah yep exactly um, also I looked it up the it's episode 21 and I forgot I changed the title so it would be more easy to find. So if you're looking for something like to, as a precursor to this episode, I, we should have said this an hour ago. Um, but go listen to episode 21, uh, 
the deck building process and testing protocols where we kind of lay out everything um, there for you, um, starting in square one, basically. Nice. Um, okay, so before we get into um, talking about different types of sideboards and ratios or considerations and all that, um, how do you like to organize your deck, right? Like what structure do you use for having a main board, having a sideboard, um, taking cards in and out, especially in a tournament setting where you need to do that quickly and efficiently and without error? Yeah, okay. So historically, what I did was I would have a sideboarding process and then a de-sideboarding process post-game. Um so I would have like my core cards, like I think in chain it was, uh, I don't know, 48 core cards. And so I brought in 12 in every match. And then after the match, I would take those 12 cards out and keep them separate in my deck box so that my core would be there. And then I would know what cards I'm putting in. Um, and I enjoyed that because it reminded me of the cards I was putting in and what my game plan was into my matchup that I was about to embark on. But what I've been doing recently for time's sake and for scientific purposes to figure out which one I actually like better, I now just pile all of the cards together in the deck box and then have my sideboard guide written out for cards I am omitting from my deck. So my Icelander deck now is uh, like 44 cards, I think, are in the core somewhere around there. And so I take out 16 cards in every matchup. So the 70 whatever, two cards that are there, I take, uh, I guess, 12 of them out. And that's how I do it now. And I appreciate that uh, more because it's way faster at the end of a game. Uh, or it, it just feels like one less step, even though maybe I have to search through my whole deck and that sort of thing. It's just one less step at the end. So I can go like get to go pee quicker or something like that. And um, I don't know which one's better, or which one I prefer, but in my brain, it feels a little bit more concise to just only know what things I need to take out is my only step ever. That's how I do it. Gotcha. Um, what about you? <laughs> so I have not tried it your way. I'm like very much a creature of habit. Um, I still do it the, I guess the old school way, if that's how you want to look at it, where I, I have my core and at the end of every match, I take out sideboarded cards. And then when I sit down, like looking at my drum, my list, I have 42 core cards, including equipment. I guess equipment doesn't count as core, but, um, and I, I like this way because so I, I also don't know which one's faster, but um, 
taking cards out and putting them in my sideboard, then when I go to add cards in at the beginning of the next match, I never have to look through my deck, right? I don't have to paw through the whole thing. I just have like three and three and three or whatever it is, and I can add them in. And it makes sense to my brain that way because I've memorized which cards go in. And, uh, you know, just at this point, that's how my brain works, right? Like I know which cards go in and for what reason, and I just have it. I have it dialed. So that makes sense to me. Um, but again, it, you know, it, it might be kind of six of one, half dozen the other. It might be, your way might be more efficient. No, I don't think there is an a, a efficient way or correct way to do it. If it makes sense for you as the pilot, then that's what you should do. And if it makes you comfortable, then that's what you should do. I just was kind of maybe accruing a tiny bit extra more, like a little bit more fatigue and or anxiety of making sure I added in the right cards um, or took all of the right cards out and that sort of thing and would like double check too much. And I feel like I am a little bit more calm when I'm like, okay, these 12 cards come out, boom, there we go. Now all I have to do is shuffle. And for some reason, for me, that feels like a better system of checks and balances. So now that, that does make sense. I, I do a bit of that. I will, after I throw my cards in, I will look through the rest of my sideboard just very quickly, but to see if anything catches my eye that like should be in there, right? Like, was there like a random command and conquer back here, you know, that should go in, or is it just like these three sinks and these two epots and these null rune equipment? And that's all there mm -hmm. is. It's like, Oh, perfect. That's, you know, those don't yeah. go in. So I, I guess I do it both ways a bit in that sense, just as a yeah. check. Yeah, totally. No right way, no wrong way, whatever makes it easier for yourself, you know? And I love this type of, that type of nitty gritty shit to maybe give you an edge. That's the type of crap <laughs> I think about, you know what I mean? Like side, side, uh, conversation here. Sidebar? No. Tangent. Uh, <laughs> since now I'm the athletic director at the high school, I'm getting to like craft my own basketball schedule. And I'm like, I can see how other athletic directors are like, well, that's an open day. Who cares if they play like back to back, you know, and we have a few like choice back to back days, but only because of, I know the opponent and like that it's a viable time to have a back to back, uh, with those two opponents in like the harder ones the next day. So the, you know, et cetera. So I love that shit. <laughs> Nice. Incremental edges. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Are you just, I can see you alone in your classroom, like during uh, your prep period, you know, just like hunched over the computer, rubbing your hands, cackling. <laughs> yeah, that's nice. exactly what happened. 0.03% increase in probability here, you know. Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> A hundred percent. That's what's going awesome. on. Awesome. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> uh, okay. Get us back on track here, Isaac. All right. 
Um, okay, so let's let's talk a little bit about like uh, different types of sideboarding. Um, right. So I have. I, I mean, these are not official classifications, but I've written down here. I mean, there's like silver bullets. There's uh, different packages for different roles. There's defensive and aggressive packages. There's equipment sideboards. And uh, there's pet cards that you uh, added in here, which is definitely a thing and maybe the most yeah. important thing. <laughs> totally is. <laughs> yeah, so uh, just kind of going down that list. So silver bullets, right, are... Uh, the card that or group of cards that come in that just help you, you know, uh, they're the silver bullet that kills the werewolf, right? So they're like the one thing that helps you overcome the beast. So like for a while, people were running like uh, chains of eminence against chain as a silver bullet card to try to like not get comboed out in the fatigue matchup uh, or um, people were running just like Katsu's running uh, red unmovables to stop uh Starvo from freaking getting crushed and go again and shit. So uh, those, those are some examples of like what silver bullets are uh, packages for roles. So like what we talked about, when we're talking about where your deck lies on the continuum and then the um the package you add in based upon what your role is in the matchup are you uh the aggressor or are you the defender based on who you're playing isaac how about you do the next couple so i don't just talk forever yeah um so an aggressive and defensive packages are like kind of in that same same line, right? Like, do you side in, you know, six D reacts, or are you siding in like, you know, uh, six scars and rabbles or whatever? Like, uh, um, you know, my example in like uh, for Dromai versus Prism, I would have to side in like uh, rabbles and blaze headlongs, you know, just to make the deck more aggressive, which is unfortunately not what the deck is actually trying to do but it it's what it needs to do you know um in that particular matchup and a lot of times these uh having your decks flex having your deck flex like this um you know whether you're putting in defense reactions or uh silver bullet cards for example like like take fog down you know like yeah you, play fog down against viscerai it's like great right they're they're not doing shit they might attack you for six at best um but it like really waters down your deck right that took a card and a blue out of your hand the previous turn um you know I, the classic example i always like to come back to is uh unmovable right like putting unmovable in your deck prevents you from getting crushed it's great but even on that turn where you don't get crushed, it costs you your arsenal card and a blue out of your hand, maybe the only blue out of your hand. So that percentage that it makes your deck quite a bit worse also needs to be considered here, right? And um, like I said, all of these cards do it to a certain degree. Um, rarely is a, rarely, or maybe sometimes a sideboard card is not, 
you know, in line with your deck's goals. It just like uh, flexes you in the direction you need to go to like get that little bit extra in order to, you know, be competitive in a matchup. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. I mean, uh, so an example I'll use, right, is like uh, Sigil of Solace in Dromai. Love it. It's a great card. Uh, it's technically in my sideboard, just by my metric, because it comes out in the Dorinthia matchup because it does not block. <laughs> it's in in the Katsu matchup because you don't have to block everything. You just have to stop mass triggers. And it actually benefits you to recoup some of the health you lost from Kadachis, which are just too inefficient to block, right? So, you know, but that's an example of a card that's like, Sigil of Solace goes in in every matchup except Dorinthia because it doesn't block. And, um, you know, that's an example of detracting from my deck's ability to function or do what it's trying to do in order to, you know, be competitive in a certain matchup, right? And you lose quite a bit here. Like, not only do you lose that life gain to make the, you know, the game go longer to buy you more time, you know, against decks that, uh, where you leak damage or, you know, take damage or maybe you get dominated or whatever. It also decreases the ratio of like uh, red cards you can play on your turn. Like, for example, if you, if you don't have any ash, you can play a Sigil of Solace, which then turns on Furnace. So then you can pitch into Furnace, create an ash, gain one resource, you know, use your ash productively, right? So... um it does mess with more ratios or more of the functionality of your deck than you might think it would oftentimes. Yeah, that all uh, makes sense. Uh, how about equipment sideboard? So like, um, you know, the most notable additions people will make are just making sure they're packing null rune for the arcane matchup so making sure you have null rune for uh the rune blades and wizards and that sort of thing um and then you know that addition of those sideboard slots can change your deck quite a bit like if the like you only have four equipment spots right is uh your head your chest your arms and your legs so if you needed to run like null rune boots over snapdragon scalers then that changes the uh ability that your deck has to push that extra attack when you need it by quite a bit so you're you're sacrificing a bit of your explosiveness for making sure you don't die to arcane damage so it does do quite a bit in how your deck functions and that is like you know part of the considerations we're talking about is uh if you run four null rune into um viscerai then that's not really a, a worthy number of slots you should be putting forth so uh your thoughts on equipment sideboard my friend yeah, um, I'll switch to Lexi for an example just to change it up a bit. Um, I was thinking of, nice. so in some matchups, you run Snapdragon Scalers, and in some matchups, you run Perch Grapplers exclusively for the blocking ability. That card's still not great. <laughs> but 
So in some matchups, you just basically can kind of lose on the spot if you get a command and conquer played against you because you have so many cards that block for two, et cetera, et cetera. Um, It makes it a lot easier to weather a single CNC turn if you have a bit of armor to block it. Um, You know, and there's other like niche cases for this, like against uh, Ninja, you can use it to, you know, stop a mass trigger or whatever and keep an additional card at a pivotal moment. However, while including this armor to weather a single turn might be the right call and win you the game, it drastically decreases from your deck's ability and also your kind of your play patterns. Because in Lexi, kind of the bread and butter of that deck is to arsenal or load, either way, a third arrow and either arsenal next to it or just like uh, place an arsenal and arrow at the end of your turn. And then on the next turn, you can fire two arrows. You can fire your third arrow and then use Snapdragon Scalers on it and then uh, load another arrow with your bracers, right? So playing an entire game without Snapdragons online, any arrow you arsenal is guaranteed to just end your turn there and you are unable to have the big blowout play you need in a lot of matchups. So it's just like one little equipment. It's like one time not having go again in a game versus having two block, but it drastically changes the way the whole game plays out because you are able to weather one turn and you are not able to have your big combo play. Yeah, totally. Uh, same thing with, or not same thing, but uh, something that could be adjacent to that is um, the addition of Vexing Quill Hand. So you'll see like a lot of Runeblade players get used to the like resource sink of Grasp of the Arknight. And that can kind of like help save you a little bit with certain hands. But then once you have Vexing Quill Hand, now you have to figure out how to function a bit with maybe a few too many cards in hand or you can't cycle as many. You know, you just have to wind up playing your four card hands a little bit differently now that you don't have something to uh, kind of get extra value from uh, uh, extra two resources um, or that sort of thing. It does then change how the end of your game goes where you get to pop quill hand and you know kill them on the spot because there's a goliath gauntlets worth of arcane damage sitting there um but so yeah uh equipment so like and then another example this is what i was really going to say is we can see in the fidex that they have a wardrobe of clothes that they bring to every matchup you know they have like four chess pieces a bunch of hats legs arms you know their suitcases over packed with clothes for vacation and their wife is yelling at them or their uh, spouse is yelling at them about overpacking for their trip and not bringing the essentials but in reality, it is the essentials that Phi needs, you know, is all of those different equipment slots to um, 
play around certain aspects of different matchups? Yeah. So two things. First, more importantly, while I'm not a huge fan of the draconic like uh, or five flame artwork and flavor, wearing Shuko's and flame scale furnace and crown of providence in there is awesome those cards <laughs> those armors look so cool <laughs> but um secondly yeah just to uh illustrate a bit more about equipment like so um i started with phantasmal footsteps um in dromai i still have it in my sideboard but some matchups you you run mage master boots so you can play out a passing mirage um with go again and then use your ghostly touch uh, without having to have the whole semblance rigmarole um, is kind of the hot new tech. So, <laughs> uh, so your phantasmal footsteps come out, right? And it, at face value, you're like, well, if I don't run these dune breaker centipies, because that those three red dune breaker centipies are like the only cards where it really applied, right? You like pitch a blue, play one of those out, then pay for footsteps. You're good to go. So if I'm not running those, that's kind of all I miss out on, right? But then you start to learn there's like a lot a lot of different things you kind of miss out. Like for one, instead of blocking Snatch with two cards, you could just block and pitch into Footsteps, make an Ash. Way, yeah. way better, right? And then there's also this kind of cheeky play you can do against Guardian where you play out, you like pitch a blue and play a blue Ember Maw Senapai. And it's really awkward for them because if they pop it, you get to give it go again and then continue your turn. But they don't want to take six damage or like, you know, so you like buy armor or it's just free damage with no go again or, you know, like puts them in this weird spot. So you kind of miss out on that cheeky play as well. Um, So there's just all these things you learn about, like even as you change one little piece of equipment that's like not functional 96% of the time, um, the whole game can change. And as you, you know, as you swap out equipment and like play matchups, it's important to pay attention to how, you know, all of the effects that this is making and like how those weigh in on the, uh, the result and the, the strategy. Totally. And it's uh, really exemplified as well in Blitz where that's all you have you know, are your equipment slots. Um, what about pet cards, Isaac? Do you have any like cards you try to fit into every deck or when you start building a deck for the first time you're just like this card's too good i'm never gonna cut it you know and though even though it moves out of the core it's still part of the sideboard just in case um i actually i'm the kind of person that should have pet cards but i don't think i do have any pet cards um i used to think pursuit of pursuit of happiness pursuit of knowledge Knowledge. yeah was uh pretty cool um i also think c and c is really good but i actually so does everybody i recently i recently cut it but it might go back in now so i i I don't know do you have any pet cards that you can think of off the top of your head um Pursuit of knowledge for me definitely came to mind as well. Just like it should be so good, right? You can like pummel it and it's a blue, you know, yeah. et cetera. Um, I think 
I always try to fit meet and greet into every rune blade deck all the time. You know, nice. I just really want to like one of my favorite plays is to bait you with some arcane damage in a like non-threatening attack and you take the arcane damage and then blammo meet and greet hard punish. Like that's one of my favorite cards to kind of try to include in every rune blade deck. So yeah, (laughs) I don't really have anything I've slipped into Icelander, you know, because I had to, there just was no precedence for it or, you know, I don't know. You just, it just really forced me to not have any pet cards. I guess my pet card in that was potentially, I was like always on in case, even when in case went out of vogue for a little bit. I just freaking like in case. And mainly it was like for the high roll play where they get encased. And then so now if you draw into freezing point and still have uh, storm striders, you can then freezing point them for minimum 10 damage. And that's just really fun. (laughs) Awesome. Have only done it once though, (laughs) but it was great. Nice. A card that's always really close to my heart is Ravenous Rabble because it's like so good in Azalea. Mm -hmm. But, and now was like, I've since cut it, but it's now, you know, good in Drobi, but close (laughs) to my heart. I will always have my eye on Snag and Chains of Evidence. That's pretty good. That's a good pun. Always have my eye on Snag. I like it. (laughs) You're, You're on fire tonight. (laughs) all right let's move on here okay yeah let's get through this here uh Um, sideboard considerations is that what we're on yep okay go ahead yeah so i just wanted to talk a little bit about the different uh the different aspects of a card you can consider when weighing it for a sideboard right So first, all right, I'll go first here. First on the list is just the card's role in your deck, right? Like, what does the card do for your game plan, but particularly for your game plan into the matchups that you want to use it in, right? So, uh, you know, an example of this would be Command and Conquer, right? Just in isolation, an extremely powerful card, but... Does it actually make your deck better when you have turns where you play Command and Conquer? Or does it, in reality, make your deck worse? Because you actually are playing with against decks with a, a lot of armor or, you know, Crown of Providence or whatever. And then your, your damage output just goes down by, you know, eight per turn or something running it. Yeah, totally. Uh, Like Oasis Respite in Icelander is potentially a really narrow card because it's a red instant, so it doesn't do any of the stuff you really want out of your cards. But uh, it gains you a health, it blocks four damage, and potentially five damage because you gain that health. Uh, You, It's a really good card to use with Tunic 
And if you get dominated and have a defense reaction in hand, you can still block for eight because you have Oasis Respite and it's an instant. So it's not technically a card blocking from hand. So in that way, it fills a niche in your deck and a variety of other reasons to have it included. Yep. Yeah. Um, so next on the list here, we we just have block value, right? Which it's at least I've been guilty of this where you're like, no, nah, whatever. What, what's, you know, a few more block for twos. But having uh, been forged in the fires of the Dorinthia meta way back in the day, <laughs> you're a great deal of my Azalea sideboard entailed siding out two blocks and siding in three blocks. Like, you know, blue whispers instead of, you know, some better card <laughs> just because it blocks for three. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've noticed like lately with Dromai, it's like, uh, my game plan in a lot of matchups is uh, second cycle. Um, not really fatigue, but a second cycle game plan. So I've ended up cutting um, a lot of cards that block for two. You know, some players were running blue rake the embers or um, or blue pursuit of knowledge, actually, um, which is pretty good in the mirror, has all these... Uh, use the cases and i may be wrong about some of these but i have leaned towards having an almost entirely block for three deck just because of my game plan and uh even having Mm -hmm. just one block for two or heaven forbid two in hand when i'm trying to enact this game plan (laughs) i uh feel like i just lose on the spot and get annoyed with myself so we uh (laughs) we just have more block for threes in there yeah uh, some, something else to consider. I think we can lump these two here uh, together is your cost curve and your like functional ratios. So functional ratios being like attacks versus non attacks, uh, prevalence of Sixers, uh, blue ice cards, etc. cetera. Um, so you, a great example of this, I think is when you run Sonata Arcanics, but then you need to side in for some reason, like a some defense reactions and like instants or non or attack reactions instantly makes your sonatas worse. So you should side out your sonatas or reconsider the inclusion of those cards that are either not non attacks or attacks because then you're siding out sonatas and so then you need to like consider then how that overall ratio of those things affects um not only your ratios for sonata but then just like your overall turns being able to go uh non-attack attack rosetta swing or something like that and then also with cost curve you know going back to your command and conquer example right like if your deck uh, really functions off of one or two resources and now you're adding in a card that costs more than one and is a costed card of two resources without go again, it makes it really hard then to potentially 
uh, continue your same game plan, which might be not uh, attack, attack, and both of those cost two. And now you play Command and Conquer, and that's a total of like four resources. So you have to kind of weigh that. And for the most part, too, I don't. Icelanders a little bit different because you do take blues in and out, um, but you kind of always have your core blues, and those are typically just like your mainstay cards. Like you don't really fiddle about with those. Like if your deck runs twenty two blues, you just run the twenty two best blues and just like boom, leave it at that. In in edge cases, do you have to side out? some of your blues for different blues. Yeah, I will say though, um, for when you go over 60 cards, like for Leviah, I used to have some blues in the sideboard that have multiple functions. But if I was going up to like 68 or 66 or whatever it was cards, I would also say I would side in four more reds or five more reds. I would also side in a blue or two just yeah. to keep my uh you know cost curve relatively even in the deck it's not my highest priority to have exactly the same cost curve but it's definitely something that you need to consider and you know with some things it matters a bit less right like if you are siding in a ton of defense reactions and trying to go to second cycle you know, maybe the functionality of your deck on the first cycle is like less of a consideration. Maybe you're just mostly blocking and swinging a weapon, you know, like Club Reinar, mm -hmm. for example, right? So then it's like, you know, you have enough yellows and blues in the deck. You don't really need to keep it even with these extra defense reactions. You know, you can execute your game plan just fine. Block out, swing the club, set up your pitch stack. But if you are trying to actively function while siding in you know nine d reacts like say you're playing against starvo as viscerai or something right like now this is a very serious consideration because you're trying to present threats and have a functional deck while it's significantly diluted totally 100 percent um so then kind of the effectiveness of a card versus the number of matchups that card is effective in. And so that goes back to figuring out if a card is a actual silver bullet or part of a package of cards that you need to make a matchup better. So like if you have a card teched in for Azalea, well, it's not a very prominent hero in the meta. So <laughs> the effectiveness of that card, while it could be very high, the number of matchups it's effective in will be very low. So you could perhaps think about changing that card out for something that is uh, going to help one of your other more prevalent matchups. Yeah, and this is a very serious consideration. And um you know, this touches on, uh, we had a number of our listeners submit questions, which we've incorporated into this episode, and it touches on a lot of, um, you know, what they're asking about in a, in a number of different ways. So I'll use a recent example of um, Dromai against Viscerai, right? It's like a very difficult matchup. And I was running both a race face 
and Irina's prayers in that matchup. I also had a more red line deck, so it was easier to get Irina's prayer online. However, Viscerai has become less prevalent in the meta, and so the effectiveness of these cards goes down, right? Because against, you know, wizards, I have Sand Cover and Oasis Respite that also have a role against Guardians, right? So I don't need the Irina's Prayers for that. Um, it was kind of only against Viscerai. Also, a race face is not great against Phi, to be honest, and also blocks two. You know, it's real damage against Guardian. It does have its roles, but it, it's just like underwhelming, except in that singular matchup. So this was like six cards I was I had in my sideboard that do make the Viscerai matchup better but are just not worth six slots for a hero who's kind of fallen out of favor. In addition to that, I run more blues in my deck, both for the functionality of my deck and how I pilot it, but also because those blues are effective against Eastlander, Kano, and Viscerai, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I still have that tech kind of, but it's more general tech. And a lot of people asked us about, you know, like, you know, how we weigh teching against certain heroes. Do we try to shore up our terrible matchups or um, just try to have great matchups into the, the best heroes of the meta or like how we weigh that kind of thing? And um, I certainly hate having auto losses, but, you know, again, I can't have six slots dedicated to Viscerai right now. I need them dedicated to old him in Eastlander, you know, for example. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't really know how to quantify how you weigh that, right? Like, I would just say from my you opinion, have Taylor, you have a whole uh, equation written out here for that exact thing. So why don't you just talk about that? Why don't you just right, say it but, out loud? But it's devoid of numbers. <laughs> so I did write out um, effectiveness of a card, right? So it's effectiveness in an individual matchup versus the percent of matches it is effective in, right? So uh, you know, quality versus quantity, right? Or like how good is it in how good is it versus how good is it in how many matchups? Versus your increase in win percentage, right? And by this, I I mean, so if you have a 10% win rate into a deck and adding in a card brings you up to a 25% win rate, that's a 15% win rate increase for the addition of one card, which is awesome. But it only brings you up to 25%, you know, is that... Uh, is that really worth it? Is it worth those slots? Uh -huh. And yeah. maybe it only functions in that one matchup, right? So uh, I don't know. You got to think about that as well. And um, then what's the last delta here you have to put this into? Is uh, maintaining functionality of the deck, right? Exactly. Um, you know, and we had those unmovable NCNC examples before and all of that. Um, but like I said, I didn't attach any percentages or numbers to these things. Um, I do think if you had enough testing time, right, you could play. Uh, let's pick a deck that's like prevalent right now, like uh, 
you know, like Briar or like Easlander. Say I'm playing against Easlander. I can play 20 matches against Easlander without the Mai, right? That card's decent because it's a dragon and it blocks for three and is red. So it's a resource card. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it's like, you know, there are better cards you could have for other matchups. Um, so I could play 20 matches into Easlander with it and 20 matches without and calculate my win percentage. That's still like a relatively low number, but you know, you can get an idea there, right? Yeah. Um, small sample what, size. Yeah. Also what factors into this is your piloting. So I would have to know, do I, you know, arsenal it? Do I attack with it? Do I play it out as soon as I get it? Do I play it out along with a, a more powerful drag? You know, there's like all these factors as well, but, um, right. So, so know, yeah, again, it's, effectiveness of a card versus the percent of matches a card is effective versus mm -hmm. increase in win percentage versus maintaining functionality of deck so write that down at home on a chalkboard put it above the mirror every time you go to brush your teeth and just keep that there i think that is a excellent summation of how to choose your sideboard <laughs> nice thanks <laughs> which and, uh, it's, it's only funny because it that's literally how ridiculous it can be you know <laughs> and it's not even totally. really that ridiculous it's just like those are the innate things you're already probably thinking of you just never have actually put it two words out in the universe to other people you know and it gets even more like you know it's effectiveness in each matchup is different so those get weighed also and like i like i was saying you could you could figure all this out right and like have your statistics i don't play enough to be able to do that so i think taylor well you can answer after i'm done but i just do this by feel um and kind of like my i you know i try to do enough testing to get a solid feel of it not just a gut reaction but i just do this by feel but try to weigh those things all right over to you uh i do take notes but only like really really early on on like what my ideas are but i mean this is part of our uh testing team is implementing this after every testing session is uh just kind of basically talking about um that exact equation um for certain cards you have identified in your matchup so so yeah so um i think we should rapid fire these listener questions before we get into our signature segments um i think we have done a good job at talking about this topic but i wanted to get to these kind of listener questions and try to give a succinct pithy answer i don't know if those are all the right words i teach sports so first off from nate how important is null root it's as important as you need it to be i'm going to what say do you think? yeah um, I don't like to get roasted alive by Kano. Like I've kicked the shit out of some fives that come with no null rune because it's just like makes it so much easier. And that doesn't mean you'll win every game, but 
Um, I don't like to have that super auto loss to actually a you know a decent or pretty good hero. So I like to pack at least Null Rune too. Um, it depends on your role in the matchup, though. If you're unwilling to dump a card, you know, often or even twice in a game, then um, you know maybe it's not worth it. Uh, I think Null Rune is worth a bit less now because the break points for Easlander are at like five. And it's like, I oftentimes end up taking the damage and just paying for the tax because I can't <laughs> afford to do both. So I would say stock in Nolrune has maybe gone down a bit. Uh, do you prioritize adding cards to strengthen your weakest matchups or try to create a 60 plus percent matchups into the most prominent heroes. And that comes from Nick. Also, if you want to get any questions uh, to us when we're about to record an episode, you got to join the discord, which means you got to join the Patreon and then you get uh, sweet listener questions. Um, so what I do, and I think we touched on this a little bit, but now the meta is so broad that there's a lot of viable heroes and I tend to gravitate towards having um, kind of roles in matchups or packages. And my sideboard for each matchup is unique. Like I said, Sid, you know, like Dory is a similar game plan to Katsu, but Sigils go, you know, out for Dory. So it is unique. But um, I tend to have my entire sideboard dedicated to different roles. Um, that said, if I'm adding a card to strengthen a particular matchup, then it has to be a very prevalent matchup in the meta, right? So my entire sideboard is uh, for my different roles. Uh, like I said, silver bullets for Viscerai are out. However, I am looking at like using like three sideboard slots to combat Phi um, because Phi is just so, so prevalent. Um, so for me personally to have like a specific um, or some specific cards dedicated, it has to be like fairly, uh, you know, one of the top decks. What about you, Taylor? What do you think? Uh, it depends. Question? It depends. You know, like uh, Prism is so bad for Icelander or even, uh, I mean, Prism is gone, but this is just an example, or Dorinthia <laughs> that it's not worth your time to add any cards into that matchup. So, um, yeah, you should, I think most of the time it also then depends on the type of tournament, like something like a calling your sideboard should be a little bit more general because that's a pretty open field. Whereas something like the pro tour, the field is going to be a bit more narrow. So your sideboard could be, uh, or your sideboard should be more broad at a calling, but pro tour, your sideboard can be more narrow. Agreed. When designing a sideboard, do you try to select cards that check multiple boxes for different decks? For example, six power cards versus illusionists that also function out elsewhere, you know, like race face CNC. And that's yeah. from Jesse. Yeah, of course. I would love it if all of my cards in my deck I could play uh, as broadly as possible, because then that means my deck's floor is really high, and that would be pretty sweet. So yeah, I do. But sometimes you do need silver bullets because there are no other options. Agreed. Um, 
And I mean, the opposite is true, right? Like a race face was too narrow for me. So it got cut because it did not broadly apply. Yeah. Uh, final question. When deciding on a final 80, how do you decide if a card is worth a sideboard slot or not? And that's from Yuki. Uh. I don't know. Gut reaction to necessity, I guess. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, well, I'll, I mean, uh, since this is from Yuki, I'll speak to like Lexi, right? Like because of Prism chiefly, but also old him. Um, in Lexi, you had to run this huge sideboard package of like lightning presses and lightning surges and maybe even some blue lightning surges. And it was this giant sideboard that was kind of like, you know, anti antithetical to your deck. Like it in almost every other matchup, they had no function and did not, <laughs> they were not what you were trying to do. It was just like, you had to have them for this hard pivot for this, like, you know, two matchups in the meta, um, you know, so like in a vacuum, you'd be like, this is what my deck's trying to do. These are its strengths. It's good into, you know, like whatever, whatever percent of the field, it's fine. But then sometimes you do have to have that, you know, blue lightning surges to pop more auras or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. After going through everything we talked about here, <laughs> you just make a hard decision and feel insecure about it. <laughs> <laughs> mine is uh if you have a logical clear reason why a card should be in your sideboard then you can keep it and if you can't do that then you should cut it that's that's my succinct pithy answer <laughs> all right signature segments Okay, sweet. Okay, so we're going to move into pick, pass, prey. So, Isaac, draft scenario, uprising draft scenario. I'm going to give you three cards. You're going to tell me which one you're going to pick, which one you're going to pass, and which one you're going to pray comes back around. Are you ready? I am. Okay, great. Pick, pass, prey is brought to you by Fab... Foundry, go check out on its Twitter. It'll be in the show notes. Um, you can enter into a sweepstakes, giving us what your answers are to this pick, pass, pray segment to for your chance to win some sweet prizes. Uh, I think the last time he's done like store credit, which has been pretty awesome. So. Here we go. First card up is Breakpoint. It is a draconic attack action. It is the red because it only comes in red. So it pitches for one. It costs one, defends for three, and attacks for five. And it reads, 
rupture. If breakpoint is played as chain link four or higher, it has. When this hits a hero, destroy all cards in their arsenal. Push hard enough, and even the weakest Volkai might find within their heart the courage to stand against the mightiest dragons. Okay. Uh, second card is Silken Form, Draconic Illusionist Equipment Arms. It defends for zero, and it reads, Instant, destroy Silken Form, transform target ash you control into an Aether Ashwing. And it also has Quell 1. Okay, so that is the second card. Third and final card, Ice Bolt. This is the blue, so it pitches for three, costs two, defends for three, and is an Ice Wizard action, and it reads... Deal three arcane damage to any target. So, Isaac, which one are you going to pick, pass, and pray comes back around? Well, not considering signals sent, which is so important in Uprising, I'm going to pick Silken Form, and I'm going to pray Breaking Point comes back around. Uh, if Ice Bolt was a one cost... And, uh, you know, paired with Waning Moon a bit better. I might consider that. Um, as it stands without a Spellfray Cloak, it goes down on my list a little bit. However, Silken Form is an equipment that you start, that you start, it's like a card you start with play or within play, <laughs> right? As opposed to just one in your deck you might not see. Was that clear enough for everybody? <laughs> Um, but Silken Form, it has Quell and it makes an Ashwing. So it's going to like save you by whether it's Arcane or Phoenix Flames or Ashwing, like whatever type of chip damage that you can't block anyway. And it's going to make you an Ashwing that will attack for one and then absorb a damage when your opponent kills it. Or it's going to attack for more than that. So I don't know if you add up all of those points of things, it's worth quite a lot in my opinion. Uh, I hope Breakpoint comes back around because uh, you're never going to get that rupture off with Dromai, except maybe in the mirror. But it's just like a red that blocks for three and is playable um, in Dromai deck if it happens that you're still in Dromai here. Uh, I, you know, I don't know. It's pack one, pick one. If Ice Bolt's wielded, I might be an Icelander by then. <laughs> <laughs> what uh, what do you think about these cards uh i think i for sure pick silken form first uh it's you know the arms equipment it's maybe i think the best one i like it a bit more than heat wave because with silken form you can quell and make an ashwing on the same turn and for heat wave you have to choose um, and the conduit of frostburn is basically only there for the quell. So quelling sleeves are like just as good. Um, but I am praying ice bolt comes back around, uh, because then that means nobody's picking Icelander and it's going to be super open and I can't wait to play it. Even though I really like Breakpoint, and I still wonder how to make the Fymir better in draft and perhaps breakpoint is one of those cards because it's uh on its own it's a one for five which is pretty good 
two card hand and it blocks for three, which is pretty nice. So having more block for threes in the mirror is better, but as kind of for me, the weaker of the three cards here, because you would rather have like a zero cost go again starter as your like, you know, red card you pick or like a Cinepi. So that's it. That's what I got. That's a very good point, though. Um, having an edge in the five year is like, you know, very Important. valuable. Yeah, yeah, totally. All righty. Well, that's your pick pass prey brought to us by Fab Foundry. Thanks Heck on it. Yeah. On to board game from the closet. Here at the Attack Action Podcast, we'd like to play many different board games, not just TCGs, not just flesh and blood. And sometimes we like to share one of those with you in the hopes that you will, you know, discover it and uh, enjoy it for yourself. So this episode's board game from the closet is Taylor's board game. So my board game this time, and I, st- I we've we maybe are going to see repeats at this point in time, but is Keyforge, and I. Well, not I've really liked that game, but have fallen off of it quite hard, as maybe many people did. But it's getting a resurgence and is on like Kickstarter, I think. And by the time this episode comes out, it'll maybe be over. But I'm sure there's always like last chance pre-orders and that sort of thing. Um, so if you've never played that game, it's it's just a really great, fun game. It's uh, you just get a procedurally generated deck of cards that it's basically playing sealed. So you buy the deck and then that's the deck you have and it's unique. So there's never going to be another deck like it and it's yours. And it has really sold me on the idea of you being really good with just your deck, right? Like you could practice your deck and know it inside and out and just could be really, really good with it. Um, and it's like it's it's a race to forge three keys first. So it's not about attacking your opponent's health and defending it. It's about gaining resources and then forging the correct number of those resources into keys. And you can you know you have creatures and combos and. You can steal those resources from your opponent and stuff. And it's all tied up in this kind of whimsical, fun uh, package with artwork and and hilarious um, flavor text and that sort of thing. Um, so it's a really great kind of secondary card game. And uh, I might think about bringing some of my Keyforge decks to Worlds for just some like side fun that we can like still play cards but it doesn't have to be flesh and blood and you know it's great nice yeah i i'm not huge on keyforge for a few reasons but i am really big on it for a couple of really cool reasons in that you know like you've put it you can just go buy a couple decks and like just go get a beer and play with yeah them. Yep. you know, which is awesome. And they're new and they're unique and you get to explore them, like both the deck and your ability to pilot it, um, which is really fun. And uh, uh, the game is complex, but that is, I don't know, more 
I don't know what you call it, surface level friendly than like a lot of games, right? Like you can't do that with flesh and blood. Um, yeah, it's, so it's approachable. That, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, having that ability to uh, play a, a complex game in a casual setting or whatever um, is just awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. And all you need is one deck of cards. Boom. That's it. Great. Uh, well, well uh, go ahead. If you have stuff to say. I was going to say, to take us out here, I was going to read this question that you wrote down, this uh, timeless question. As old <laughs> as flesh and blood. Would you rather know the deck list or that or the sideboard guide? Oh, right. Mm, that's pretty tough. You know, I still don't know what the correct answer is because you can like reverse engineer the sideboard, um, but it saves you a shit ton of time if you just know like the guide without the deck list. Yeah. I don't know. No reverse you engineering know? in this hypothetical. Oh, yeah. Okay. Just to give an answer, I think I would rather have the sideboard guide nice yeah yeah i was thinking about this i would if it's a proactive deck i would take the list if it's a flexible deck yeah. i would take the sideboard guide yeah good call there good call you know like if it's phi i want the list <laughs> if it's like you know draw by i want the sideboard guide <laughs> awesome and with that i think we're going to call it a night thank you so much for joining us on this sideboard guide episode what a journey and it was a lot of fun to actually like think about all of these things to be able to convey the information um in a succinct manner so it's always fun when we do these types of episodes because I feel like I also get a level up from trying to like figure out how to talk about this stuff with you. So it's fun. Yeah, it's great to reflect on what we're doing and, uh, you know, kind of critique it and break it down. Um, also, if you have any thoughts, disagreements, questions, whatever, you know, uh, hit us up in the discord or on Twitter or, you know, email us, whatever. We love to uh, hear from people. Let us know what you yeah, think. Totally. Don't forget uh, faithful listeners in the discord. We now have a podcast discussion channel. So after you listen to this episode, if you have any questions partway through, you can just pop them into that channel and we can talk about them more there. So the conversation doesn't need to stop. We can keep it going. Uh, I appreciate you all and hope you're enjoying the quiet before the storm of worlds that's about to happen. So thank you. Good night and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram at the attack action podcast on Twitter. We are at battle bro Taylor and at battle bro Isaac shoot us an email the attack action podcast at gmail.com if you would like to support us like and subscribe shop for singles using our affiliate link 
or support our Patreon for as little as $4 per month.